G'day, um, this is Incarceration Advice Panel, and I'm John Safran, I'm going to be chairing this, and a few years ago, someone I was hanging out with, a white supremacist, but you know, for journalistic purposes only, uh, ended up murdered uh, a, f a month later, so I started writing about that and went to Mississippi, learnt a bit about the criminal justice system there, and that's how I kind of f fell into this world. And then coming back, uh, publishers here said, hey, John, why not write some crime stuff here? So I've been to Darwin Prison. I've uh, recently been hanging out with a witch who's incarcerated in Corella Place in Victoria. So anyway, that's sort of how I justify my existence on this panel. And we're going to have, uh, speaking with us, Eric Slosser, Debbie Kil Kilrow and Chris Munro, and I'll be telling you more about them in a moment. And uh, on your seats, a la Oprah Winfrey, you'll find <laughs> a vice special on incarceration. So uh, that's what that is. And that will be available online from the 7th of September. Uh, now, shut your goddamn phones up. But you're allowed to keep them on to tweet, so uh, we, want, we want the best of both worlds. And it's hashtag FODI. This session is being filmed, including your questions, so please use the microphones for questions. And about five minutes before question time, I'll direct you. I think there's one mic there and one mic there. Uh, now, yeah, our speakers. We've got uh, uh, Chris Munro and uh, he's a freelance journalist, and he's been managing, direct, uh, managing editor of Tracker Magazine, Australia's most read Aboriginal affairs publication, and political editor for the National Indigenous Television News Team. We have Eric Slosser, who's an investigative journalist who's got in too deep with the food industries, the drug underground, and the military in books like Fast Food Nation, Reefer Madness, and Command and Control. He's also visited prisons across America, spent time with victims of crime, and he's in the middle of that adventure, if that's the right word, at the moment. And we have Debbie uh, Kilroy, who was imprisoned for drug trafficking in 1989 for uh, six years. After she was released, she established Sisters Inside, which advocates for the human rights of women in the criminal injustice system. And Debbie has been awarded an Order of Australia Medal for services to the community and a National Human Rights Medal, and was admitted uh, to the bar to practice law in 2007. So, uh, <laughs> clap all that. Before we dig into it, to get our, I don't know, our heads in the right space, we're going to be playing a little video that Vice have put together. This is uh, the curtains for privacy and for um, checks as well. Because once they're in their rooms, um, if they're self-harmers, they could be on five-minute checks until they get to sleep for about an hour. Otherwise, no, I'm not saying you are, but otherwise it's 20-minute checks. Um, you've got to check in every room every 20 minutes. I'm just going to go up to Whiskey Unit. We've got a young person there who's on the DRMP, the Detainee Risk Management Plan. Yeah. 
Now, um, he'll be in a um, suicide guard, so don't be alarmed. You'll have, also have youth officers there with him. They'll have the, the helmet on, because young person has a tendency to sometimes spit at people, uh, lash out. So just uh, be mindful of that. I brought you uh, someone special to meet. Hey, no, brother. I've seen you really yeah. hectic. Yeah? Yeah. Man, I heard you from Aubrey. Yeah, I know people from Sherbourne too. Yeah, I'm from Sherbourne. Yeah. I've got heaps of family in Aubrey. Yeah. Too, all the Briggses, Edwardses and that. Yeah. What are you playing? You go. No, I don't know how to play it. Someone wants to teach me. Yeah. <laughs> how old are you? 15. 15. When did you turn 15? 30th April. How long have you been up here for? Since I'm 2nd of February. Oh, yeah, what's that? Six months. What do you want to do when you get out? Oh, young Aboriginal kids. Yeah. How you find them? How you find them working with, with Sam? Yeah, he's actually, he gives me chocolate. He's trying to make me put on his way. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be, I'm eating all the chocolates. I'm the one putting on the weight, not you. <laughs> Are you Matt Curson? Yeah. yeah. My favourite rapper. Yeah? He wrote a rap, actually. Did you? Hey, how's about, uh... Do you remember it? Yeah. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> yeah, do it. Come on, do it. The one girl being on my mind every day, I'm going to go see her on the 20th of May. I'll be a clean being up, no more charges on my back. Be so good till I have a heart attack. She up one day, she's super fine. When I get out, I'm gonna make her mine. Listen to my flow, it's so unreal. What's your boy on the mic? The one dizzy deal. Wow. <laughs> 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 Thanks for the time, brothers. Thanks for talking, man, having a chat. Yeah. Good to see you. You know what I mean? Maybe find that blunt thing. <laughs> when you get back there. Yeah. Look after yourself, you know, yeah. and take care of yourself. Yeah. And I'll see you back home, bros. Now, uh, why are you guys all interested in this anyway? Uh, Chris, maybe start with you. Um, well, I think... Uh, you know, even watching that that uh, short video, uh, reporting on on Aboriginal affairs, you can't escape uh, the incarceration story or, or stream of thought. Um, it's sort of omnipresent. Um, so I guess, uh, like it or not, you have to take an interest in it, and it's uh, it's one of those things, uh, like a lot of things. Uh, issues within Aboriginal affairs, it, it does weigh, weigh you down after a while. It's, it's a bit like, uh, as a journalist, um, you know, uh, hitting your head against a brick wall. It's just um, very, ba you know, small baby steps uh, towards progress. But um, look, I think, uh, as I was, I was having a chat with Debbie before we came on, it's, um, I think if we can do, do anything as journalists or, or writers or, or operators in the media to, to make the community care a little bit more about, um, uh, about their neighbours and about their fellow, fellow man, um, then, you know... And I, have you found it easy to get access to prisoners and to get access to prisons to even start telling your stories? No, it's, it's quite difficult. Because um, that, that sort of says a lot about how isolated and how hard it is to kind of make connections between prisoners and the public is they just really it's impossible really and you have to yeah. work out all these 
loopholes, which maybe I'll talk about a bit later, to, yeah, even, yeah. to even talk to people and, and get their story out there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, it's about getting, the, getting access to the story and it's often difficult. We, um, we had a look at um, getting in touch with Malcolm Naden and, and some of the crowd would know who he is, but it's, uh, it, that proved very difficult. Um, but we did want to, yeah, as you say, sort of get, get to the crux of the story, but uh, it, it proved very hard indeed. Now, now Debbie, uh, did you think about the criminal justice system before you were in prison? Um, no, because when I... Well, no, because I was 13 when I was first in prison. So in a... Well, it was called a Sir Leslie, youth, uh, Sir Leslie Wilson Youth Hospital then. So um, the youth prisons were basically run by the health department. So... Um, that's how they cloaked it then. Um, so, no, as a 13-year-old, no, I went in, got locked up for wagging school, like truanting, so um, definitely hadn't thought about that that was going to be the consequence for wagging school just because the education system and the teachers weren't engaging me and I didn't want to be there, so um, no. And when did you make a leap? Because if you're in a situation and you're subjected to violence, you can say, oh, people are awful, but when did you sort of have a bit of a revelation that it goes beyond that. It's not just human nature, it's not just humans, it's systems that can um, cause all these problems. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that people are born neither good nor bad or awful for that matter. I think we as a society and how people are socialised become in many ways who we are um, and limit our choices of what we do, can and can't do in society, in our community, and therefore, you know, if you, like we were talking before, Eric and I, about, you know, we don't have any say of who our parents are or where we're born or, um, you know, into what class or uh, down in Struggle Street, for example. So, you know, we're all human beings and we need to connect in that way. But can I just stop for a minute? Because I do want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation here um, that we are um, speaking this morning. I reside on Nullumpur land, which is um, south of Brisbane. That runs from what we as whitefellas call Cannon Hill through over to Kwandamooka country, um, Strabroke Island. And I want to acknowledge, um, because there's so many Aboriginal people that are incarcerated and that's, you know, the stark reality of um, whitefellas coming here, being brought here as criminals for punishment to be brought to this country, but then what happens, those in power back then over 200 years actually stole this country. So, you know, what is a crime? But I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land this morning before we go any further, um, because it's fundamentally important that we do so. So, um, Eric, how did you roll into <laughs> being interested? Were you... Because... Um, you weren't in prison or anything like that. So no. what, what, what happened when you first became interested? Uh, the editor of an American magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, in 1993, asked me if there were people in the United States in prison for marijuana. And I had no idea. And it really wasn't something that was being written about in the mainstream media. And I found that there not only were people in prison for marijuana, but some of them were serving life without parole for nonviolent marijuana crimes. And I found a hippie biker who had introduced a marijuana grower to people who wanted to buy marijuana. He didn't grow the pot. He didn't sell the pot. He just introduced people. And he was given life without parole and sent to one of the most dangerous prisons in the United States, which was Leavenworth Penitentiary. So I visited him there. And I wrote a long investigative piece 
about the war on drugs and mandatory minimum sentences. And it began to look at the growth of the prison system in the United States. And that led me to look at this issue. So I then did a, a very big investigative piece on the American prison system in 1998 called the Prison Industrial Complex, which was my attempt to understand the social forces that were leading to mass incarceration. And ever since then, I've been working on a book on this subject, and hopefully that book will be done in the next year and a half. But it's just led me to visit prisons throughout the United States and overseas. And my interest in it comes from my interest in um, what's happened to my country in the last 30 years when this prison boom has occurred. When I was a kid, there were maybe 300,000 people in prison in the United States, and now there are 2.2 million. So rather than look at the lives of celebrities or the wealthy and powerful, I think that if you want to understand America, look at who's in prison and look at the bottom of society. And, and that's been one of the motivating forces of my work is to sort of hold up a mirror uh, to my country and show what we're doing to the poorest, weakest, most vulnerable people in our midst. Now, there's no shortage of uh, TV shows that cover crime in uh, America. What's her name? Nancy... Uh, is that... Who's that American reporter who's Nancy, Nancy, Nancy? How can you not help me out here? I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, can, don't worry. I could make something up. Sure. Just... There's, no, there's no shortage of, like, crime reporting in America, but have you found through your writing that there's certain ways of looking at crime that publishers and the public are interested in and there's certain ways of looking at crime that they're, they're, they're there, less interested in looking there's at? An, there's an enormous interest in true crime stories. There's an enormous interest in murder and murderers. Uh, I, you know, again, because I tend to write about depressing things, I spent a year investigating murder in America, but not doing it from the point of view of the murderer. I think we talked about this a little bit. I, I did it from the point of view of the family of the murder victim and how they're mistreated by the criminal justice system. And in America, we have a culture of murder that puts the murderer as this, like, almost heroic figure. I mean, we've had, you know, TV series in which the serial killer is the protagonist. So there is this ridiculously deluded notion of what crime is like on television where somebody shoots somebody else and walks away and has an amusing conversation, whereas police officers are often deeply traumatized when they shoot somebody, even when they legitimately shoot somebody. And the consequences of a single murder last a lifetime for that victim's family. So the mass media is obsessed with crime but is spreading lies about it. And the mass media in the United States, up until just recently, has shown almost no interest in the poor and the mentally ill and the people of color who are being warehoused in, in prisons um, instead of being given health care, housing, employment, and equal rights. So the, the, the story of prisons in America is really about the story of the growth of inequality in America over the last 30 years, uh, the demonization, in many cases, of young black men. And um, my country's been in denial, and I've been trying in my own way to pierce that denial and I'm very glad that Vice is doing this panel, that Vice has this issue on incarceration. It's amazing that the President of the United States visited a federal prison recently, his first American president ever to visit a prison. I think, um, I think this issue is now just beginning 
to gain the kind of attention it deserves, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of activism to shut down these prisons. And, and I'm, I'm going to shut up for one second, but the one thing I want to say is one of the few countries in the world that has imitated the ridiculous prison policies of the United States is this country. And coming here, I am amazed that you would see what we've done in the United States and in any way want to emulate it. So maybe we should open up to what's happening in Australia. Well, even on a paperwork level, when I was over in Mississippi, one of the, prison, the private prisons and its, its name, and I typed it into Google and saw it was a private prison that had interests in Australia too. So this, this, pris, this prison company that was so dubious it was getting in trouble from the government in Mississippi was um, also operating here in Australia. What, have you, is there like a distinction between private prisons and non-private prisons in Australia, Debbie? Well, obviously, you know, we, we don't advocate for prisons at all, but I mean, at the end of the day, we want state-run prisons so that they're held accountable to us. Um, because if we as a community want to lock people up, then we need to know um, what's going on and who's in our prisons and um, the state be made accountable for that. But when they become privatised, they're covered by commercial um, confidentiality and it becomes a huge issue and contracts are signed um, that governments have to uh, ensure a certain amount of people are in that prison so that they make the profit because if they don't, um, they actually lose money. And then what happens in the state, us as taxpayers have to pay the private providers anyway. And it's just not prisons, what we call prisons uh, in lay terms. It's also our immigration detention centres because they're prisons and they're run by private prison providers. And we have, you know, numerous businesses making profits on the back of the most vulnerable in our communities through these private prison contracts. And it has to stop, you know. Um, this is about capitalism, the worst end of capitalism, or if there's any good end about it, but I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we've just seen recently um, people profiteering, for example, in the US about because of vending machines. So even when you talk about reform, um, people are still looking at the ideas of profiteering or to the point where they're making um, the mental health units in the prison uh, look nicer because they have actually purchased or made beautiful vinyl furniture in the colours of lime and mango because that's more soothing. And or, you know, we have more recently, I was reading in the US that the private prisons are about to sue a number of states in the US um, because they have not provided the number of prisoners that they need to actually work in what we call the slave industry. And it's an extension of, because people work for about $2 a day at home, the women do in our prisons, and pretty much similar, you know, amount across our prisons, women's prisons in this country. And it has to stop, because the majority of people don't need to be in prisons. Where but, we uh, have who, who should be in prison? Well, I don't think anybody should be in prison. I think we can think out of the square. I think that there's people that have to be removed from our society, but prison is the answer. Prisons are very now, violent how you institutions. How from society but not in prison? Well, it's not one thing. It's a number of things. We have to start thinking outside of the bars. Instead of what's happened to us because of the law and order campaigns that have come from the US thick and fast and over here in the last number of decades, that prisons have become part of our subconscious landscape to the answer to when 
you know, crime is mentioned. Like, Billy's committed a crime or Mary's committed a crime. Oh, got to go to prison. You know, let's start thinking outside the bars and thinking about what is it about Billy and Mary that's happened and what are the resources that they need and the support in the community instead of a dumping ground over there. Because who's getting dumped is the most vulnerable and marginalised in our society. It's not the wealthy and those that have the resources to actually remove them, themselves from that system or even being caught in that system because the police don't police those people with the resources. The police police the poor, the black, abused women, mentally ill, homeless now, and that's the dumping ground. They've become the default, that's, prisons become the default position for those people in our communities. The, in, where, where I'm from, from Melbourne, it mm. seems amongst, you know, progressive types that uh, when push comes to shove, if there's certain crimes committed, they just want the people locked up and they're demanding from the government that mm. they're locked up when, uh, uh, like, Marsa Vakotic, who was this schoolgirl murdered uh, in Melbourne by some dude who was going through rehabilitation. Like, you know, when, when you start getting into the details, lots of people aren't... Suddenly it's like... It's, it's a bit more of a difficult question to be saying, well, you know, people shouldn't be locked up. Well, I think that's the difficult question that we have to debate and have a discussion about instead of just using prison as a dumping ground. You know, we are supposed to be the most intelligent beings, you know, in the world and we can't have, what, we can't have hard conversations about that? I you know, know we I, I think we need to step forward and have the hard conversations because it's not a black and white issue of Billy and Mary's committed a crime and then there's a victim, for example, and they're two separate entities in that situation. But I, I can guarantee you that probably Billy and Mary have also been victims of crime and that's never been addressed and the injustice is there and how that we get boxed and labelled. We need to have the difficult questions about um, imprisonment and what form, if any, do we want in regards to how we treat human beings and do we want to dump them in these places? And the, let's face it, the majority of people in prison will be released one day. And I can tell you I would rather be addressing people's social issues that government is not because they are just eviscerating services like lightning to the point that that's who's going, getting channelled into our system. Is that how we want to live? If that's how you want to live as a community, then you need to be part of the debate. And you need to be part, part of the debate about what's happening in our prison system as well and whether you accept that and want that and endorse that. We can't just dump, shut the door and forget about people. I was, I was thinking when you were talking about uh, private prisons and, mm. you know, how they, they can motivate things, also state prisons can in a way, or maybe I'm wrong, but let me follow my thought through, is that I've noticed in Victoria, <clears throat> if someone commits an awful crime that captures the public's imagination, like Julian Knights, who did a mass shooting uh, many, many years ago, and... The, the government just knows that it's election suicide unless they, you know, introduce their legislations that are going to keep Julian Knights uh, locked up because if they don't, you know, the local newspapers will start a fuss and which, which government wants to be uh, standing up for releasing Julian Knights, the mass killer, back into public. So there, there's a manner in which... Uh, you know, it's, it's complicated with, with state prisons as well as private Absolutely. prisons. Absolutely, and the reality is there's one Julian Knight. The 30-plus thousand people in prison today are not all Julian Knights. Yeah. 
They are people who are poor, people who have been abused, people with mental illness, people who are homeless, people who, Aboriginal people, that's who's in our prison system. It's, you know, it's fine for the journos, the media, to run with the face of one person that commits an horrendous crime, but that's not the reality of what I'm talking about or who's in our prison. And that's what the community needs to know because the community's fed through mainstream media what to think, and it's time that we actually have to change our thinking and analyse whether the media is giving us the truth, the whole truth, for example. There's many aspects to a story and it's very hard to, you know, educate the community to understand the realities of prison unless we have the hard conversations and there's access to that, obviously. And Chris, what have you seen about how mandatory sentencing plays out in areas you cover? Yeah, look, it's um, it's a worry. Um, there's it obviously takes away the discretionary powers of a judge, um, which is what they're they're there for. So um, we've obviously got a situation, you know, down the track where where jail is the or, or detention is the only only answer. And in places like Western Australia, for example, it's just uh, it's a basket case. There's uh, you know, some outrageous uh, figure. I think it's 53 times. Uh, more likely uh, for Aboriginal youth to be detained than than their non-Aboriginal counterparts. So, um, and then you, I guess, then you've got the situation too, where if there are uh, diversionary uh, sort of uh, paths in place, they're underfunded and they're they're often, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to solve the problem. So often jail uh, is the only option for, especially a lot of Aboriginal kids who who may not have uh, have a place to go or or a you know, a guardian in the sense of, of the law to, to look after them. So we've got, you know, a big problem. And Debbie and Chris, is there any versions of these things we hear about in America, about three strikes and you're out? Are there versions of that in Australia? Well, there's mandatory minimum sentencing across most jurisdictions. And we've had the three strikes in the Northern Territory and Western Australia, which have since been repealed um, because of advocacy. But I mean, you know, well, we have Victoria removes suspended sentences, for example, so that actually pushes the prison rate up and, you know, um, gradual release processes. So there's a number of ways. Crime is reducing, however, our prison numbers are going up. Crime and prison numbers have nothing to do with each other. They're two separate things. And so we need to understand that about, you know, like I said before, who's being criminalised and who's incarcerated. So, yes, we do have laws that definitely funnel people into the system that take away um, judicial officers' discretion. The, uh, I mentioned before I was, went to Darwin prison to talk to a prisoner and the story behind that shows how insane, I guess, mandatory sentencing is because, uh, you know, for murder, for instance, if you're the guy who drives the knife into someone, you're a murderer, but if you're the guy who drove the car with the guy and let him off and knew he was going to commit the crime, you're also part of the murder too. Anyway, in this case... According to the judge, uh, this young man who was Aboriginal and he'd pulled out of a murder plot and decided, listen, I just don't want to be part of it. So he, he didn't actually turn up to the murder. And 
the judge just said, listen, I know you weren't there at the murder. I know you pulled out because you thought it was wrong. But, you know, obviously there was a bit of culpability because he should have rung the police, but still. Um, but the, the judge just said, my hands are tied. You, we have mandatory sentencing here in the Northern Territory and you get uh, life, you know, just like the same as the guy who drove the knife, knife in. So that's an example of how strange the laws can be here in Australia. I'd like to comment on some of the, the things that, are, that have just been said. On, on the issue of private prisons, Australia has the highest proportion of inmates in private prisons of any nation in the world. You've got about 20% of your inmates in private prisons. And what's so bizarre about that is the major private prison companies here are foreign companies. So you're turning over one-fifth of your inmates to foreign corporations whose track record is pretty spotty. Uh, the private prison companies have a vested economic interest in keeping people in prison. The, the economics of the private prison industry is very similar to the hotel industry. The higher the occupancy rate, once they have to staff the prison, the more profitable it is. Um, but unlike the hotel industry, you know, as a guest, you can't check out. Uh, the private prison industry has, a, has an economic incentive to pay their guards and officers as little as possible an economic incentive to provide as little education, drug treatment, programming as possible. And, you know, oddly enough, I could be persuaded to be in favor of private prisons if there was a different metric that was being used. If the metric was, what proportion of the people released from a private prison never go back to prison again, become functioning members of society, maybe they, these institutions should be given an economic reward for helping people improve their lives. But that's not the metric. The metric that's being used is what's the cheapest way to incarcerate these people. Uh, in this country, I think, the, in the United States, the average inmate is spending two and a half years behind bars, and that includes all the people who have life sentences or 30 or 40-year sentences. In this country, I think it's a year and a half so what you've created is this perpetual prison machine, like a, like a revolving door in which poor people are incarcerated for profit, they're abused, they're let back on the streets without drug treatment, without education, without the kind of help that they need, and then they're back in prison. And, and, and one last thing, you were, you were talking about, well, what are the drivers of incarceration? And in my argument uh, about the prison industrial complex that I made, in 98, the, the three driving forces that I found, one was political. Uh, politicians who were using the fear of crime, the fear of the poor, the fear of minorities in order to get votes, and racism, and you certainly see that in this country. The other is a bureaucratic imperative. Once you have these prison systems, and it can be a state system, there is just this bureaucratic need to grow, and the people in the system get power and are very often reluctant to let go of power. And then the third driving force is economics. And economics, not just the private prison companies that make money off of incarcerating the poor, but also in the United States, uh, in the 1980s and the 1990s, we had very conservative uh, economic policies. and. Prison building was literally the only form of rural economic development that we had. So instead of investing in rural communities, these rural communities got prisons, and you had this incredibly perverse situation where the poor of urban America 
were being sent out to rural America so that the poor rural people had jobs as, as prison guards. So you have you know, huge businesses that are now dependent on high levels of incarceration, but you have also entire regions of the United States whose economy is now based on locking up the urban poor. And so this system is gonna be very hard to undo. And, and unfortunately, I, I disagree with you in, in the sense that there are some people, I believe, who deserve to be in prison. And I've met some of them, and you know, serial rapists, uh, child molesters, uh, murderers, people who have shown that they harm other people, I think need to be separated from the rest of us. I think they need to be treated humanely and, and their problems need to be understood, but they do need to be kept separate. And certainly on behalf of the victims of those crimes need a sense of justice. Our criminal justice system is based on public support for it. But if you look in the United States in particular, what proportion of that 2.2 million are serial rapists, child molesters, you know, really violent murderers and offenders? It's, it's a small proportion. We have a lot of illiterate, poor people with drug habits who are being incarcerated at enormous expense. And one last thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn over the floor. I was looking at Australia at how much money you spend on incarceration. Now, I am staying in a really lovely, really nice hotel in Sydney, and I'm grateful to the festival for putting me up there. The typical inmate in Australia's daily incarceration cost is not only higher than the daily rate at the hotel that I'm at, but you could stay at the hotel that I'm at and order room service, and it would still cost less money than putting these poor offenders in this country behind bars. So it's a, it's a perverse... Is that your dangerous idea? Move all the prisoners to your hotel? <laughs> I'll tell you, the hotel might not like it, but it would certainly be less expensive for the taxpayers of Australia to put them up in a fancy Sydney hotel than to put them into the private prisons that you've built in this country. No. Um, I don't think we disagreed because I actually said that there are some people that need to be removed from the community. It's just not to prisons that are violent environments. It's other places that obviously we need to think about what they are because prisons are the murderers and the rapists as well. They facilitate those things that happen within the walls. So I'm not disagreeing about there are some people that need to be removed from the community, but the majority don't. Okay. Mm. Um. May I ask you a follow-up question, kind sir, which is, I was in communication with this guy in a Californian federal prison, and he was, as, he was mad furious for all the things you just said, but he was also furious at the union that represented the guards and said they were a huge problem in this overall thing because... Uh, you know, if, if there was anything about, hey, listen, we need less guards, we need things less often, they would... Uh, uh, pull their weight and and try to stop stop any progress in that area. The the California Prison Guard Union has been very controversial because they're very politically conservative and they've lobbied for tougher sentences for inmates. Uh, there are many in the progressive community who focus on this union as the cause of the problem, and I'm not one of them. Um, in states that don't have unionized guards, you still have very high rates of incarceration. Uh, people point out that the corrections officers in California often earn more money 
um, than assistant professors in the, in the academic world. And having spent time in California, where the prisons are amongst the most dangerous in the United States, where there are high levels of gang membership, uh, being a correctional officer is a dangerous, stressful job, and I think they earn every penny that they make, and I think there need to be union, cor unionized correctional officers at every single prison in the United States. One of the reasons that private prisons have spread so widely is they fight tooth and nail against unions. Uh, some, of the, some of the officers in private prisons actually have made less money in some cases than fast food workers, um, and there's very high turnover rate. So if you're going to have these facilities, you want to have the people who are staffing them well-paid, with benefits, with as much training as ed and education as you can provide them. And so uh, the U in the United States, if you really want to look at the rise of incarceration, it's not because of the unions. It's because of the politicians, uh, the corporations, and the correctional bureaucracies. And uh, uh, Debbie and Chris, have you seen people involved in the prison industry who aren't prisons just become like hardened and, uh, you know, just going slightly, slowly mad because of what they have to see and what they have to put up with. You mean the people in the prison or the staff? The staff. No, I haven't seen any staff go mad. I've seen definitely women prisoners go mad because of their treatment. And mm. um, what kind of people end up being staff in, in prisons? Well, um, in Queensland, they were... Um, adults, obviously, who didn't have to have uh, any form of formal education. But when I was in prison, like the last stint, so late 80s, early 90s, um, there was a window of reform there and uh, education became the priority for everybody, for us in prison and staff. And so prison officers were encouraged, as well as we were, to um, further our education. So, you know, get our high school certificate or go to university. And there were some prison officers that actually did that. And obviously when they started their university degrees, they moved on to different jobs because they didn't have to stay as prison officers anymore. Um, as well as us that were educated too, going to universities, we never came back to prison. So none of us returned, interesting enough, when we all got educations. Um, so, uh, which is fundamentally important. But I mean, we're back to where we were before, that you don't have to really have a formal education, a tertiary education. You do about an eight week course, and then you be can become a prison officer. So uh, what do you think can happen in, in, in Australia to turn this all around? Well, we as a community have to turn it around. There's many aspects. We have to, um, you know, encourage strongly our politicians to grow a backbone and take a stance for the most vulnerable people in their communities and all our communities. And uh, it's up to each and every one of us to do that. We can't just, you know, they have the power, but we have, to, we have the power as a supposed democracy to force that. And it's, that's why we have to have the hard conversations to do that and not let just politicians run with it or the prison system, you know. Um, and we have to think about the issue of capitalism and do, do we want these private providers to be running our prisons? And, but do, for the argument, do we have to cordon off certain sorts of crime and say these are the kinds of crimes that we, we think, well, think shouldn't be imprisoned or just in, in, in prison yeah. in general? Well, I think we can reduce um, penalties for certain crimes. We, you know, what I always talk about is 
Um, I'm an abolitionist, but I know in my lifetime I'm never going to see the abolition of the prison system or the prison industrial complex as we know it. Um, so uh, that's what we aspire to and to get there. So that changes our terms of engagement or our, you know, our starting point to get to abolition and the strategies that we use are decarceration. So, you know, we could let out all the people in prison today that um, are in prison for fine default, who haven't committed, uh, you know, a crime against another person, for example, um, who are drug addicted, for example, um, you know, because that really is a health issue, not an issue of crime. And, you know, I don't think, I believe that we wouldn't see a spike in crime overnight if we released all those people. So it's about decarceration, how we do it. And the reality is um, about 30, 40% of people in our prisons are actually sentenced. About 30% are in there on remand, so they haven't even been sentenced by a court, so they're awaiting um, for the outcomes of their their criminal matters, and about the other 30% are there for violations of parole, usually. So our prisons aren't full of just people serving sentences. So, yeah, you know, so we can look at many different things and have those conversations. And do you think there can, there can be a, a U-turn at some point, like stranger things have happened, you know, suddenly within less than a decade in America, gay marriage goes from being this taboo, strange thing that no one ever talks about to... Uh, being the new normal is it, 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 uh, yeah, it absolutely it absolutely can happen i mean i got involved in opposing the war on drugs in 94 and i wrote about this guy who got life sentence without parole for a non-violent marijuana crime i found many other people i found at least a dozen other people who had life without parole one for just a roach i mean really small amounts of marijuana and 20 years later it's fully legalized in the state of colorado and you know businesses are rushing to do it. In the case of prisons, it's remarkable, but when I was a little kid, prisons were considered obsolete in the United States. It was the mainstream view. When Ronald Reagan was the governor of California in the 60s, he was politically very conservative, but he was proudly closing down prisons, and Ronald Reagan was responsible for an inmate bill of rights. So, but you look at the political culture of the 60s, and you look at the political culture of the last 30 to 40 years, you know, we have to shut down the prisons, we have to change the prisons, but what we really need to do in the United States is change the society. And when you have a deprived community, invest in that community as opposed to take the members of that community and, in, and incarcerate them. Um, we are, you know, criminalizing a large proportion of the United States. It's, it's an incredible statistic, but 70 million Americans now have a criminal record. And I think there's something like 250 million adults. So once you have a criminal record, it limits all kinds of opportunity in society. There, if you have a felony conviction, there are certain jobs you can't even do. And so we're taking a, a whole class of people, of the poor, and giving them a criminal record for crimes that aren't necessarily murder, rape, et cetera, et cetera. And almost creating a permanent underclass. So again, uh, when, I, when I think of prisons, I think of, yes, I think of the injustice that's happening right now behind bars, but I think of the much bigger injustice in American society and looking at the prisons as a way of looking at what's wrong with my country and how it went off 
the tracks, and that's what we really need to deal with. And when you really start fixing the inequality and injustice and racism in American society, you won't have these prisons anymore. And uh, Chris, why do you think th there seems to be a lack of empathy amongst people towards prisoners? I, I was really uh, re recently, in the last couple of weeks, I spoke to this writer who went inside Australia's most murderous prison <laughs> about his book. And there are all these lists of hor horrible things that are in the book, and I had bullet points, you know, the actor from Hey Dad, he was walking um, when he was first in prison and the other prisoners were throwing shit at him and all these horrible, horrible stories. And when I was interviewing this writer, he, never, he didn't present any of these as horrible. It was like so there was a spring in his voice going, <laughs> anyway, so the guy from Hey Dad's walking down there, they're throwing shit at him. <laughs> and I just thought, like, there's, he's the mindset of just so many people, which is this uh, lack of empathy and understanding, how, how, do, how, how does that change? How do, we, how do you convince people or how do you get people who, rather than preaching to the choir, people who yeah. are just like, you know, I've had a tough life and I managed not to get thrown in prison, so screw, yeah. screw these yeah. assholes. I think, well, yeah. I think um, <laughs> the mainstream media has a massive, massive role to play in this and um, uh, I guess you see the... Um, as you mentioned before, the sort of flashpoints where, uh, like the murder of Jill Ma, for, for example, in Melbourne, where um, uh, the mainstream media sort of jump on, and, and by no means am I, uh, you know, cheapening uh, what happened there. It was a horrific um, uh, event. But um, the mainstream, mainstream media sort of jump on these events, and, um, and that sort of obviously, as we've all touched on earlier, influences... Uh, the law, law and order sort of policy in this country. And we've obviously got oppositional politics here where um, whoever can go tougher on crime uh, wins the middle Australian vote. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess uh, we're up against it in terms of um, uh, uh, changing the mindset. But in terms of empathy for, for prisoners, as Debbie mentioned uh, earlier, there's, I think it's 40-odd percent or a, a fair chunk of people uh, incarcerated uh, are in there for non-violent and non-sexual crimes. So um, there's other ways of dealing with them and, and obviously um, uh, punishment, there's a stack of ev evidence that says imprisonment as a, as a punishment just doesn't work and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't change. Um, people's propensity to commit crime uh, down the track, it, it, it doesn't uh, change recidivism rates. It's... Um, it really is a flawed uh, psychology or a concept, really. Um, but I guess, as we've sort of grappled with on this panel, how do you um, uh, uh, distinguish those who um, need to be, I guess, separated from mainstream society from those that can be, um, you know, plausibly rehabilitated? And hey, I'm going to ask a couple more questions, but maybe if, you're, if you want to ask a question, I think there's a microphone there and a microphone there, so maybe start making your way there and I'll ask one or more question or whatever and then we can go to you guys. Uh, is there any system you like, Debbie, that when you look around the world? I don't like any prison system because of the violence that... Any prison that I've been into or any prison that I know women that have been in, no matter where they've been in the world, it's always been an abusive, violent experience. And, you know, um, before we go to questions, I do want to raise the issue 
um, that I think we can turn around, and that's uh, particularly for Aboriginal women. Aboriginal women in our, this country and in other countries where there's high population of Aboriginal people, so Canada, and, and it is in the US as well, but um, have the highest incarceration rate for Aboriginal women. Um, Aboriginal women are being incarcerated at a rate of knots, outstripping everyone else. Like in the last decade or so, Aboriginal women here, their incarceration rate has been has increased by 58.6%. Whereas white men, and there's more white men in Australia than Aboriginal women, if we think about population rates, that same period, white men in Australia were incarcerated by about 3.6% increase. Now I know if I walk down a dark alley at night and I see a group of Aboriginal women drinking and laughing, or even fighting for that matter, I'm not fearful to walk down there. If I see a group of white men, I will actually t would not go down there in a blue fit. But what we're seeing is the incarceration, so the over-policing and I think the backlash too um, of the women's movement and fighting. We've all fought, women fought for protection for women and children in regards to family violence and domestic violence. And we saw laws enacted in jurisdictions all across this country that were what I call degendered. Um, so they weren't written in a way and enacted in a way to protect women and children, it was to protect all persons. Um, and then what we see is then how that is enforced by the police. And you go into Aboriginal communities and you go to our prisons that are um, in North Australia, so towns or women's prison, Darwin, and over in Western Australia. Um, you know, over 80% of women in those prisons are Aboriginal women and a high percentage of them are in there for violent offences. So then we see the academics and the writers, the journos write about that Aboriginal women are becoming more violent. But the issue is, since domestic violence laws, that the police will come into the house or the park, wherever people are, and issue uh, what we call in Queensland a domestic violence order. They're called different things in d different jurisdictions. Um, and that's a civil matter at that point of time, until that order is breached and it becomes a criminal matter. So when there's another incident, the police are called again, they're actually arresting the women for Aboriginal women for breaching the domestic violence order and then charging them with what I call a reactive violent offence. So they've defended themselves against the violent man, but they're the ones who are ch criminalised, charged and imprisoned. And because they can't go back to their community, they're languishing in prison for sometimes up to two years waiting for court. Or, and the other failure in the system, and this, this just pinpoints the failures, is then when they're in prison, you know, let's face it, that the legal system is infected by white, able-bodied men, and so Aboriginal women won't talk to those men in the first instance as their lawyers, and so they're asked down in the cells of court on the day when they get to court, did you stab Billy, for example? Right, you're pleading guilty. Where those of us who are going in now representing the women in North Queensland, I'll ask Mary, tell me about Billy. And you hear this horrendous story of years, if not decades, of violence that's been perpetrated on Mary. And then also the incident that she's been charged for and in, on remand in prison for, and how every defence in the criminal code is there in her favour. And so then we get, get to court and run a trial in front of a jury, but that can take 18 months to two years because the court system's so slow. She's found not guilty by a jury trial or prosecutions drop the charges, then she's released. But I mean, in the meantime, she's languished in prison. And this is who, where the stats are coming from through ABS, etc., about Aboriginal women are more violent. You know, these are women 
the other issue that are incarcerated, then their children are removed. And we have another stolen generation of those children that are being removed. And they're not being put with kinship carers. They're being put with non-Indigenous families to be raised as white. We see the same situation, the same policies and systems just being reproduced, but window dressed in many different ways. All you've got to do is scratch the surface and you see the same racist, sexist, misogynist structures, systems in place and enforce and impacting on Aboriginal women and children's lives. Cool. Ooh, two. Hey, so, so maybe the first person on microphone one can ask a question. So my name is Vasco, I'm here from San Francisco, California. And this question is directed to Eric. Um, it's a very Silicon Valley question, so I apologize in advance. Um, are there opportunities to use statistical techniques or data science to more accurately predict who are repeat offenders and who aren't and use that information in decision making to more optimally utilize resources such as prisons, but also you know, mental health services and rehabilitation services? Do you know of any such efforts? Um, and can you speak to the traction that they're getting or what barriers there are to broader, uh, broader uptake of those types of techniques? Uh, the California correctional system right now is just a absolute disaster. So when you look at who is being sent to prison in California right now, 80% of the people going to prison have already been in prison, many of them five or six times. There are all kinds of models that are, that are being developed that are, are predictive of violent behavior. And those can definitely be improved. Uh, most murderers will never commit another murder. And that's not to say that they should be you know, walking freely, but there are other kinds of, you know, pathologies that lead to repeated violent behavior. And that sort of thing can, can be in increasingly predicted. But the system is such an incredible mess right now that that's certainly not what's guiding sentencing policy. It might be guiding uh, certain parole decisions, and th there absolutely needs to be more scientific and more statistical stuff introduced into the criminal justice system. What's amazing is the statistics that we have just based on offenders. And I just wanted to read this, because to me this gives you a portrait of the American prison system. The incarceration rate, which is the proportion of adults in prison, I think in Australia it's 165 or 180 per 100,000. In the United States, among white men, the incarceration rate is 480 per 100,000. The incarceration rate among black men is 3,000 per 100,000. And the incarceration rate in the United States among young black men who have not graduated from high school is 35,000 per 100,000. And that's the portrait of our prison system and our society. And maybe instead of sending young black men to prison, we should ensure that they get an education and education is one of the best predictors of whether you're going to go to prison or not. Anyway, thank you. Uh, so thank you for an interesting panel. Um, I had a question about one of the reasons why, um, you know, reflection on why women are being incarcerated at a higher rate, which Debbie kind of answered, so thank you. Um, I was wondering in the Australian context, so this is perhaps directed towards Chris and Debbie, um, we know that we can um, put pressure on legislators to change laws 
Um, we don't have a state election coming up, we don't have a federal election coming up. So in terms of today, next five minutes, tomorrow, what can we actually do to help people who are coming into contact, who are currently in contact with our criminal justice system or our, our prison system? What can we do to assist those people? Debbie, yeah. Okay. Um, so you're talking about women who've already been charged with an offence or prior? Yeah, or any... Uh, so, you know, the, the work that you're doing with Sisters okay, Inside sure. or work what that's currently okay. done, what can we do to help prisoners currently and right. perhaps reduce recidivism? Well, I suppose, yeah. yeah. What we do at Sisters Inside is many things. So um, we support women while they're in prison. We support them when they've been charged, when they've gone through court and on release with the purpose as a starting point to get to, you know, to decarcerate, ensure that they don't go in the first instance, or if they're in there, that they're okay, that they're having contact with their children, that they're moving through the system as they're supposed to within the bounds of the law, and then on release to ensure that they get their children back, that they have housing, that they report to parole, and that could be just a basic thing of transporting them, driving them there physically, um, ensuring there's food on the table, you know, all those basic things. Get them to Centrelink, get them to healthcare, get them to drug and alcohol services or mental health services. So doing that day-to-day -day support grind, um, walking with them. We do also do a lot of work with the children whose mums are in prison because they're our next generation. So a lot of the children who um, are probably now teenagers that uh, some of them have been caught up in the juvenile justice system or you know, have been in, we do a lot of work with them to actually keep them out by engaging with them using youth workers that are at Sisters Inside. You know, it could be around Aboriginal art programs, taking them on cultural camps. We had a touch football side, you know, that we got the young women together and played, got flogged every week, but anyway, um, not that I'm competitive, but, uh, <laughs> and, um, but you know, but it teaches you things playing in team sport that these young women never had a chance to do. So you can, you know, contact services that work with people, prison organisations in your community and actually engage. Start a touch football team, start an art program. You know, it doesn't really cost much. You don't need government funding. But what it does is young people bec become engaged in that and instead of they say, we want to come here and do this and not jump in the stolen car with the boyfriend at night because we'd rather be here. And it's really as simple as that. It's about relationship building and community building. So, you know, I'd go to your local organisations that do the work and see where you can assist in one way or another with the purpose of decarceration and working towards abolition. Hello, Pearson. Uh, my question is more to the panel in general. So, um, from what you've seen in the prisons, how much would you say that they focus on rehabilitation in terms of rehabilitation programs and support groups rather than just the attitude of locking them up and trying to keep them there? I'd say it's very minimal. It's more a marketing exercise by corrective services. Corrective services is very good at marketing or and politicians saying we've got, you know, 130 million dedicated to rehabilitation services. But when you break that down, it's actually staff employed in the prison that may be running a gym or um, I don't know, an art program or something that's really not working towards um, anything beneficial. So, for example, um, Townsville Women's Prison at the moment has over 85% of those women are Aboriginal women, over 90% of those women can't even read and write. And a numeracy and literacy course isn't even run in that prison. You know, for me, it makes sense to be teaching the women in there to read and write. And, you know, first of all, 
instead of just worrying about them not doing anything or locking them in in solitary confinement. But Corrective Services does a good job of marketing, you know, to keep you in your place um, and to, you know, feed you information that they're doing a good thing and rehabilitating. Because really, it's at, at the end of the day, it's the individual's responsibility if they re-offend, you know? Like, it's my fault. It's not the system's fault that they failed me and I don't have a house because they're not responsible for any of that when I'm released. I have to go out back literally out the front door with a garbage bag with my property that I went into prison with and then walk three kilometres from the prison women's prison to the train station and then get myself to Centrelink and the parole office with no money. Or if I do get money, I get a half a crisis payment from Centrelink, which is about $160, to survive for three weeks. Well, can you imagine that if I took everything off you today and you had to walk out here at the opera house and you've got no home, no clothes, I'll give you 160 bucks, and you survive on that. It's, it's impossible to do. So that's why we see people go back to who they know, what they know, and, and just, it's churned. So that we need to, you know, ensure that there's housing for people and release, ensure that there's education. And if you want to have industry in a prison, for God's sake, make it relevant to employment out here in the free world, because it's not. Tearing up rags inside a prison, you know, doesn't give you jobs out here in the community. Eric, oh, Eric, is there a way for the businesses making money with the prison industry to be making money in the rehabilitation industry that doesn't involve prisons? You know, they're moving into that, and the private prison companies are opening up halfway houses and drug treatment facilities, uh, but again, I think the metric should be not how inexpensively they provide these services, but does it work? And if they're successful at educating people or getting people off of drugs and ensuring those people don't go back to prison, I'm all in favor of them making a profit. But that's not how these contracts are being awarded right now. And in the United States, the question about rehabilitation, I mean, the state of California eliminated the word rehabilitation from its statutes as one of the goals of prison and you know, put the word punishment there instead. There's very little rehabilitation in prison in the United States right now. There's very little drug treatment. And one could make an argument that if you really want to rehabilitate somebody, prison's probably the worst place imaginable to even try to do it. I mean, the logic of taking someone who's dysfunctional and putting them in a building with hundreds, if not thousands of others, highly dysfunctional people, and then not providing services, education, it's, it's a recipe for perpetuating dysfunction. So I think prisons are most effective at keeping certain people away from the rest of us. But if you really want to educate, you really want to rehabilitate, you really want to provide drug treatment, prison's probably not the best place to do it. And how does the fact that everyone's running out of money, like the government's running out of money, is that, is that going to impact on prisons? Like they can't afford them? Or is it something where even when you can't afford it, you just buy it on credit or something? I think that in, in the states, in, in the states, the, the rise of the of the prisons occurred, you know, often during times of poor economic uh, uh, measures. But uh, but now the system's so big, and it's so expensive. In the United States, it's 60 billion American dollars a year, and you know, if you're spending 50, 60, 70, sometimes 80 thousand dollars a year to incarcerate 
a mentally ill person and putting them in a, in a mental institution or uh, a residential uh, healthcare facility would be a third of that cost. Increasingly, people are beginning to question the current system. We've only got a couple of minutes left, so we've... Oh, but there's only one person there. That's good. Yeah, how many people are there? Just one person there, too. Excellent. No one else stand up. You go, you go first. This was almost oh. entirely answered by the last question. Um, so I'll try and change it a bit. It was relating to the, the goals of the prison system, I guess, or for criminal justice. So um, rehabilitation, punishment, protection, blah. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, in reforming or replacing the prison system that their goals, um, that they are goals we should keep and build on and maybe reprioritise? Or do you think there are other things that we could be looking at, other goals and purposes for prisons? Chris, can you give a very, very quick answer? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, uh, yeah, the goals and aims of... Uh, of Imprisonment needs to change rapidly. There's, as I mentioned before, imprisonment as a, as a punishment, there's just mountains of evidence that says it doesn't work. So we do need to look at, at, uh, at different ways to, I guess, to, to achieve a similar goal and, to, and to, to make the community feel safe, but also, uh, as we've mentioned over and over, um, all these little practical things to keep people out of prisons once, once they've been in. Well, this last guy, you look like you're going to give a long-winded question for some reason. <laughs> like a, one of those speeches where... But you can't, because you've only got 15 seconds left. Go, go, quick. What can the panellists tell us about justice reinvestment? Oh, everyone seems to know about that and he's clapping it. <laughs> yes. I don't know what... It starts from an assumption that there's justice in the first place. Um, and I know that everyone's hanging their hat on it here in Australia at the moment as the be-all, end-all of the next, you know, shining light. But the reality is, you can't, you know, why rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic? It's still going down. Thank and you. No. You want it short? Zero yeah. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> now, can I thank uh, Eric and Debbie and Chris? And uh, everyone who's got a book will be signing their book. Do you have a book? Do you have a book? No? You do? It's not here. Do you have a book here? No. Only Eric will be signing uh, his book. And uh, try and give a strong, definite endpoint. Whilst audience is clapping, guide the speakers off stage so they don't get stuck talking to audience members on stage. Yeah, OK. Well, see ya. What? She wants to take a selfie. Oh. <laughs> now, but ready? Smile. Hands up to end the prison system. <laughs> See you, you. later. <laughs>